Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, I love our listening community, and for those of you who did not uh, get to hear the um, the end of the last hour, I'm going to really encourage you to go uh, back and grab the podcast later today at MyFaithRadio.com, um, or you can find it on the Faith Radio app. Kathy Branzell had all kinds of good ideas related to Christmas and the cultivation of new traditions. Um, and we had a listener who texted in an idea, and I didn't see it before the end of the last hour. So I'm just going to read it now. Um, so consider this an addendum to the first hour of Mornings with Carmen today. L- listener Becky uh, texted in this idea. After Christmas, we take all the cards that we received, we put them in piles of five, and then we mail those five families a letter telling them we're going to pray for them every day for two weeks and ask them to text, email, or call us with their requests And we repeat this every two weeks until every family is covered. It's been so powerful. So um, that requires some math. But if every two weeks they're they're praying for five families, um, then how many Christmas cards do they get, Paul? Oh, I'm sorry. I I, <laughs> I think it's well, five times like 25, five oh, times 25. Okay, They're getting like 125 Christmas cards. So um, if you're getting like 125 Christmas cards, you could do it this way. If you're getting 250 Christmas cards, you either have to do 10 families every two weeks or you have to do five families a week or something like that. Anyway, you have to figure out the math for yourself. But Becky's family must get like 125 Christmas cards and therefore can put them into piles of five and pray for five families every two weeks. But I love that idea. So fantastic. Um, okay, uh, I want I wanted to lead off this hour before we talk with Peter Kapsner. I just wanted us to consider um, because this issue was raised by somebody uh, yesterday in a in a text conversation that I was having. Um, they are they are asking for um, help dealing with what they are calling their shadow life, and so it it led me to consider how often we need to look in the mirror deeply and check our shadow life. So your shadow life is the one where sin is clinging to you um, and you've made some kind of peace with it. You're carrying it around all the time. You actually recognize it's there. You're not actively seeking to have it exposed to the light. You just sort of learn to live with it. It follows us around. It clings to us. Other people can see it. Other people can see it, but no one's confronting it. And it's compromising our witness. So maybe the shadow life for you is uh, is pornography, even casual pornography, X-rated movies, R-rated movies in some cases. Or maybe it's sexual promiscuity. Maybe it's alcohol. Um, maybe it's another kind of substance abuse. Maybe it's another kind of addiction. Maybe it's the subtle way that you rob your employer by spending time at work playing video games or streaming videos or scrolling social media, all of which, by the way, is theft. Your shadow life could be the anger that's expressed without reservation, that is cutting deeply the people who are closest to you, the people you're living with. And it's doing so um, with with sort of ever-increasing measure. Maybe you're spending money you don't have um, and going deeper and deeper into debt 
What is your shadow life? Well, I'm going to just encourage you, whatever your shadow life is today, expose it to the light. Ask God to shed the light of Christ. Um, He is the light that comes into the world. Um, He exposes the darkness. Let's have one of our Advent practices this year be the cleansing light of Christ in the shadow life that we're living today, whatever that shadow life is. All right, next up, I've got Peter Kapsner. We are going to, oh, we're going to talk about a number of headlines um, related to the church. I want you to think about what is the church? When is a church a church and when is it not really a church? We're going to have that conversation up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Peter Kapsner is back. Welcome back. Hey, Happy Advent. Hey, oh, you know, I, it's so funny that you asked because I really love Advent. I And, and it's kind of had a, a I just uh, turned 50 a couple weeks ago. And so when, the, you know, the, the, the cycles of life, right, where I grew up. This and, is your birthday song. It isn't very yeah, long. I know. Hey, sorry. I might have missed <laughs> you your sang, birthday. You, you sung us so beautifully, which, which I appreciate. And um, <laughs> But but growing up in the kind of religious tradition that celebrated Advent as a kid, it just was sort of what you did, and it was kind of part of the liturgical calendar. I didn't really think much of it, but my parents engaged in a different kind of denomination. It was Evangelical Free, which I loved. Um, when I was about 10 years old, they went to a different church, and we did not practice a lot of Advent at that time, at least in that season in the Evangelical Free Church. And I know that many EV Free Churches are doing more of that kind of practicing now, but I just, it became a practice that was entirely unfamiliar to me until we started having children right around uh, 2000. And as I got older, 2004 and five, we really, my, my wife, Hallie, really developed a, a beautiful sort of month long set of practices with the kids that we, we still do to this day. And my oldest uh, just turned 21 and we have an 18 year old and then down to uh, nearly 15, 14 and, and uh, 10. And it just has formed a really fun practice to do week in and week out, but also day in and day out on some things. And and it kind of just keeps us anchored in the craziness of life, right? To just even even a short practice, something related to Advent on a given day is really helpful. Yeah, I, I love it. I it, it creates a rhythm. I really um I really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. I want to have a conversation with you um about a, a headline that I've read. Progressive United Methodists announced new denomination. Liberation Methodist Connection. Connection is not spelled in a way that your lexicon will recognize. (laughs) Um, And this is a group of progressive uh, United Methodists, and they have announced the formation of a new Methodist denomination. um, And it is more about full inclusion um, of LGBTQ people than it is about uh, a system of beliefs or or a doctrine. In fact, the subhead to this article at Religion News is correct doctrine is less important to the new denomination than correct action, collaborators right. said during the Sunday presentation. Um, what are the marks of a true church? I mean, I recognize that that has like historical theological answers, but when we're when we're scanning around, there's lots of churches out there. Um, 
Why does doctrine matter, and why does a denomination that is describing itself as the unfolding kingdom of God, um, mm. you know, eliminating the king, um, why, what's, why should we look twice? Why should we look askance? Why should we wonder? Yeah. That's such a great question, Carmen. I think that's what really struck me about that article, too, was that we're, we're basically not going to care about having correct doctrine anymore. Uh, we are going to care about correct practice. And and I think the attempt is being made in this moment to say, whatever you believe, we will sort of welcome to the table as long as you're practicing uh, the, the sort of right kind of practices, I suppose, in life. But doctrine, by its definition, is a belief or a set of beliefs that's held by a church or it can be held by a political party. It can be held by a group. And the interesting thing about doctrine is that you simply, no matter how hard you try, you can't get away from it when it's a belief or a set of beliefs. And so the doctrine, as it were, of, the, uh, of this group is that we don't want to have doctrine. <laughs> well, well, if you want to have uh, some kind of doctrine, then, uh, then you don't belong, except that's a doctrine in and of itself. It's always a, a, a circular, self-refuting statement to say that I don't have a doctrine, because that very statement means that I have a doctrine. <laughs> and, and so it, they're, they're creating a group of who can be in and who can be out, which I think is probably what they're attempting to resist in the inclusion movement, right? It is, we were maybe part of a church growing up that was very dogmatic in their doctrine, and they, they created an insider-outsider kind of community. I can just sort of see the backgrounds uh, that in terms of the, the protests that I hear so often from people saying that they were so dogmatic, we, we don't want to do that. But groups that are inclusive-based groups end up being equally dogmatic about who can be in and who can be out. But I think the hard part about this and why then it matters related to your question is that if the set of beliefs by which we're going to live means that we are going to try to understand who Jesus is, if we're Christians, right, we, we, that means we're followers of Christ. And, and follow, what followers of Christ are meant to do is attempt the best that we can to understand the way that Jesus lived, the power by which he operated, the way he thought about God's kingdom, the way he represented God's kingdom, and then we humble ourselves and, and ask God to intersect in our lives so that we can grow authentically in that same kind of Christ-likeness. It, it is a movement of humility. It is a movement, a movement of trust. It is a movement of surrender. It's a movement that says that you are God and I am not, and I want to, to shine as an ambassador in your world. That's very different than the inclusion-based movement, which is, so I am the source of what I say is right about my life. Uh, I am not going to bend my knee to anybody else. If I want to practice life this way, then I'm going to practice life this way, and you must include me so doing. If I perceive of myself this way, then you must uh, include me. So it's a very dogmatic community, but it's a dogmatic community that is based uh, on, on the locus of who is God and, and who is in control in the human being. And that's where I think the insidious nature of inclusion uh, movements, uh, Karma, and I understand them on many levels in the sense that there are people at the margins that have been brutalized by the church. And, and that is so uh, unbelievably wrong on every level. But, but the correction to that is not then suddenly we get to decide for ourselves what is part of God's kingdom, what isn't. And, uh, and you better include me regardless of my beliefs or my set of practices. Yeah, so um, for those of you who are United Methodists or know United Methodists or care about the United Methodists in your community, this is something that they are going to be talking about. Um, and uh, part of what this new group, this new denomination, 
which describes themselves as expressing uh, various forms of liberation theology, which, by the way, is a doctrine, um, go, goes on to say that the right action that they're pursuing— so, again, they're not going to focus on doctrine, and yet they are liberation—they're the, the, basing it all on liberation theology, which, by the way, is a doctrine. Um, but then they go on to say that these right actions include reparations, caring for the earth, finding new ways to live together outside of systems like colonialism, white supremacy, patriarchy, clericalism, and heteronormativity. Um, by the way, all of those words and ideas have doctrinal bases, You cannot have a praxis without a doctrine. And so um, there is no way to separate the conversation of um, of orthodoxy from orthopraxy. They are intimately connected. Your orthopraxy, whatever you consider to be right action, um, right practice grows out of whatever you consider to be right doctrine, orthodoxy. And so um, just don't be fooled by the language um, don't be fooled by the linguistic gymnastics that, the, that people are playing. Um, you know, keep asking, what is the belief system that produces the practice that's being advocated? All right, Peter Kapser and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to have uh, a, a further conversation about when is a church a church? Um, could it actually just be a tequila bar? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly all right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. We're talking about the church today, um, in part because that word and the experience that people have of the church is so different. Um, we have a listener uh, who's been looking for a church. We've been praying with her about that. Um, Peter, it's 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 not always easy, right, to, no. um, to identify a congregation with which we can align ourselves, where we can get really sound biblical teaching and genuine fellowship, where there's a real balance of grace and truth. Um, but the way people define the word church is also um, wide. And I guess I'm wondering, as I'm reading these headlines, um, I got one here out of Europe where there's a tequila bar that's applied to become a church in order to beat the rules related to the coronavirus. So is a tequila bar a church? I mean, like, what qualifies as a church? And then I'm reading another headline about the veneration of a soccer star um, and where they literally have, like, uh, started a church. I mean, they actually, like, have these, like, religious practices around the veneration of this soccer star. So, I mean, obviously there is a longing in the heart of man to worship something, right? We know Mm. that that's in there. But, uh, But when is a church not a church, and is it fair to let the world just play around with the word? Yeah, gosh, you know, and and I wanted to just respond to something you said too there earlier about that it is hard, right, to find a a fellowship of believers that are um, staying true to the word and and living out life together. I think we obviously don't have the yellow pages anymore, though somehow they still get dropped at my door uh, (laughs) once a year at this point. But uh, but if you were to look in the yellow pages in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area where I live, you would you would find I think it's a little north of 450 different denominations and. That it just it's it's so it makes it hard because back to our previous conversation, we've divided so often as the church over a series of beliefs. And and the question becomes, when do those series of beliefs then fall outside the bounds of that which could constitute the church? And I think one helpful starting place is to kind of unwind ourselves and unwet ourselves from the idea of the church as an organization, as as a uh, sort of a group of salaried individuals who are pastors 
that then create a kind of environment that they hope is inviting to people to come in and therefore grow the organization and and practice life as the church. And and that may be an expression of it, but the church in the New Testament, again, when we see that word being used, if we were to look back into the original language of it, uh, it would simply be that the idea of the people of God who are gathering together and have bent their knee and are following Jesus through the power of the Spirit to be uh, ambassadors in this world. Now, they had to figure out what that meant, right, of course, and they had to figure out how they were going to practice that life, and they were going to have to figure out a, a series of theological and denominational questions. But, but if you can't make the claim that I have bent my knee, I have given my life, I have surrendered my life to follow Jesus, uh, because again, to, to be a Christian, the heart of that word, I think it's from the Latin, simply means to be a follower of Jesus. If you can't claim that that is the central truth of your life, then however it is that you decide to organize— is is going to be representative of whether you're the church then or not. And so a church of a tequila par, uh, and as much as I can sympathize with the idea that that some organizations are saying, wait, it doesn't seem like the scales of justice are weighed evenly, you know, for COVID restrictions across different organizations, or you have people in the Argentina, the country of Argentina, that were so moved uh, by the exploits of Diego Maradona, the soccer player that you referenced, because it was tied up in the politics of the day and a war between Argentina and Britain. And he scored this famous goal called the hand of God. And he he represented hope for so many people back at that time because they had lost their loved ones in this brutal war and, and Argentina then beat England. And it was all of this stuff. So I understand the reasons for those things. And you may want to gather and you may even want to venerate people. I mean, we still do that today to our sports heroes or our political figures or people that we, we really want to esteem. But if you can't make that central claim, <clears throat> the reason for our gathering is that we've bent our knee, we are following, we believe that Jesus really is Lord and King and Messiah, and we're going to figure out how to do life together as the people of God then, living under the influence and by the control of the Holy Spirit to shine his light in the world. That's the base claim. So if you can't say that, you can't be a church. Now, how you express the church, if you can say that, well, then that can take a wide variety of different kinds of, of applications, I would say. I just, I just continue to, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised anymore, Peter. Maybe I, my, I still find myself surprised when people are attracted to worship and venerate and bow down and give money to and invest yeah. time and make flags and go to rally. I mean, whatever, where it there is absolute worship and veneration of yep. creatures individually or the created order uh, more broadly or issues around which they are so heavily identifying that they're failing to live into the identity of what it means to actually be human. Like, like I, I feel like yep. that. I feel like when we talk about people are image bearers of the living God, we then we then imagine that could just mean anything, anything you have a fancy to make that mean, and that is actually not what it means to be human. Like to be right. human is to be um, genuinely not only an image bearer of the living God, but in a reconciled relationship to Him and living authentically as He designs and desires. Like that's what it means to be human. But that's completely yeah. lost. That's just completely lost today. Yeah. 
It, you know, it is, Carmen, and quickly, and maybe a segment for another time, too. I think when you look at what happened in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, right, there, there's this line of demarcation where in Genesis 2, the beautiful created order comes to being through God, and, and his people are, are meant to be stewards that are partnered and tethered to God, and there's no doubt in that who is God and who is not. But in Genesis 3, the serpent comes in and does a couple things, introduces doubt, first of all, and then second of all, in that doubt, he says these words, uh, here's the deal, you can be like God, you can know good and evil for yourself. And I think when you really mine out that phrase, you can be like God, you human beings can be like God. I'm going to create the doubt that the creator of the universe really does have your back. And therefore you can be like God, chart out the future as you see fit. And boy, oh boy, when, when we have engaged in that, and that is, I think, the shape of the world not just today, but through history in the great battle of light and darkness, it really it comes down to, do you believe that God is God or do you believe that you are God? Because all of your practice and all of your doctrine and all of what you said, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, is going to be derived from that Genesis 2, Genesis 3 uh, juxtaposition that happens right at the beginning of the Bible. Amen and amen. All right, back to the Bible. Uh, where are you in the Word today? Let us be in the Word of God before we get out there into the world that he so loves. That is Peter Kapsner. Hey, thanks, man, and um, a happy Advent. Like, go yeah. do something Adventy today. I you, will, you love Advent. You I, yeah, and whatever yeah. you Adventy do, text over to me because I, I want to hear it too. I love new practices for Advent. All right, there is uh, Advent Peter Kapsner, Peter Kapsner Advent. We're going to, I don't know, make him a hat or something. Ooh, it's going to, we're going to cap off the year, by the way, Peter, next week with um, with three days of, of year-end celebration and inviting people to give. So I think I'm going to see you next week. I, I'm so like excited. You are eyeballs. coming to the studio next week? I am. I am. All right. We will have a blast. See you then, Looking man. Forward to your okay, right. see ya. We got more up next. We'll be right back. talk about the power of the local church to make a real difference. Um, We're going to talk with Alvin Sanders about Uncommon Church, Community Transformation for the Common Good. What's this all about? Well, it's about urban ministry and the reality that um, everybody has a concern for the urban poor, but most churches don't have any idea how to actually address the concerns that we have in ways that seek the common good of the entire community. Um, And so we're going to ask some pretty direct questions about whether or not we're just treating poor people as goodwill projects or whether or not we're actually treating them as people and what transformative ministry in America's urban cities actually looks like. Alvin Sanders up next with Uncommon Church. This is Max Licato. Let the sleigh bells ring. I love Christmas. Let the carolers sing. The more senses, the merrier. I don't complain about the crowded shops. I don't grumble at the jam-packed grocery store. Well, it's Christmas. I love it because someone will ask the Christmas questions. What's the big deal about the baby in the manger? Who was he? What does his birth have to do with me? The questioner may be a soldier stationed far from home. She may be a young mom who, for the first time, holds a child on Christmas Eve. The Christmas season prompts Christmas questions and answers because of Bethlehem. God is always near us, always for us, always in us. We may forget Him, but God will never forget us. He called Himself Emmanuel, God with us. This is Max Locato, Because of Bethlehem.
pleased to welcome Dr. Alvin Sanders to the show. He's the president and CEO of World Impact. Uh, He is here today to discuss his new book, Uncommon Church, Community Transformation for the Common Good. Alvin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, part of what I'd like to do here at the outset of the conversation is to have you define some terms, um, if that's okay. Would that be all right? Yeah, sure. That's great. All right. So um, we're going to talk about the local church. We're going to talk about urban America. We're going to talk about poverty. We're going to talk about advocacy. Um, And then we're certainly going to talk about the key roles that uh, the church plays in the community. Um, But let's start with the definitions of some of those words. What is poverty? What is poverty? Well, I I define poverty as a condition that people live in. Um, I believe the the big issue is that people see poverty as an identity of a person, and it's not. I mean, poverty is simply, I don't have enough financial resources to meet whatever needs I have in my life. And there are also, there are obviously a variety of reasons why that might be the case. Some of it might be because of your poor decisions, or some of it might be because of just the environment and the systems that, that we live in may have affected your ability to be able to provide for yourself financially. So, but at the end of the day, what it is not, it is not an identity. It is just a condition that someone lives in. So one of the, one of the things I think we need to learn to do um, is to use language more accurately and to actually think about what we're saying. So could I, if I started thinking about poor as an adjective, so I could talk about poor education, or I could talk about a poor neighborhood, but I am going to talk about people who are experiencing poverty yes. um, as opposed to poor people. Is that is that one linguistic shift I could make? Yes, it is. Uh, the reality is most people won't. But the, the big thing besides the lingui- linguistic shift is the mindset shift. Right. That if you make that shift in your mind, that is much more valuable than anything else. Yeah. So sometimes um, I'm just recognized that if I'm thinking long enough and hard enough about how I'm saying something, then I'm beginning to move my mind in the direction of right thinking about it. So, um, so that was part. Yeah, part of my. So talk about advocacy. You, um, one of the things that you that you talk about is, um, you know, when you sort of came into this conversation and into this environment in the very very early 1990s. Um, there might have been people who had, you know, right theology about some of these things, but no practical, you know, no practical living it out. Um, you, you talk about seeing a shift in relationship to that, and that gets us to the conversation about advocacy. So can you tell us a little bit about the shift you've experienced and then talk with us about why advocacy is not enough? Yeah, so advocacy, essentially what we're talking about is uh, advocacy is an empower, is empowerment towards something, right? And empowerment, and at the end of the day, the base core understanding of what empowerment is, is I'm going to help you achieve or do something in your life. That that essentially is what empowerment is. And today, the in a good way, in a good ethical way, the mindset is when it comes to dealing with folk in poverty is that everybody wants to be a, an advocate. And I'm speaking in terms of the Christian world, so to speak even though this may be true outside of the Christian world, but specifically in the Christian world, you're going to be hard pressed to find anybody, particularly the younger you go, 
that doesn't want to do something to help people who live in the condition of poverty, which is a drastic change from when I first entered ministry 30 some odd years ago. Uh, but what, what's happening is when you ask them or you start to sort of scratch beneath the surface, well, well why are you here? Why do you want to change the world? Why do you want to empower or be an advocate for those who are in poverty? There's not a whole lot of depth, particularly theologically, in terms of the why, my mindset. Why am I here? Which unfortunately leads a lot of people to have a much better political philosophy developed or a much better humanistically, humanistic, so to speak, philosophy developed than they do a theological philosophy. And if we say that we follow Jesus Christ, we all need to have a strong practical theology as to why we're trying to be an advocate for those who, who live in a condition of poverty. It's so supposed I'm, to be our, I mean, I guess I would say, Carmen, it's supposed to be the driver for us is our, our righteousness, right? And we get our righteousness from the book, of, from, from the scriptures. And so we need to be understanding what the scriptures have to say about those who live in a condition of poverty and then act upon that. That's that's really what's missing nowadays, in my opinion. Right. And so we're going to have people who are listening right now who are going to immediately imagine that we are talking about something that is not Christ centered or something that is um, so, you know, it it can't be very Jesus-y. And that's quite the opposite. It's actually very Jesus-y. Like we, yes. evangelical Christians in America, particularly those of us who are white, have abandoned this space because somehow we imagine that some other theological group, you know, gets to be responsible for this. And in fact, what I, what I sense you calling us to is a revival of real evangelicalism, which lays claim to who Jesus is in relationship to the poor and says, look, just talking about it or just using, uh, you know, our platform, quote unquote, or social media, you know, to leverage awareness about it is actually not enough. There, There is some hands and feet part of this that requires us moving back into urban environments and going beyond advocacy to real partnership. So I want you to talk about the three things that local urban churches um, are called to do, are called to be in relationship to people who live in the condition of poverty. Um, but we got to take a very brief break. I'm talking with Alvin Sanders. Yes, I have copies of the book, Uncommon Church, Community Transformation for the Common Good. If you're an urban pastor, um, if you are a church member um, in, an, in an urban environment, this book is for you. So text the word book to 877-933-2484. Alvin and I will be right back. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Continue my conversation with Dr. Alvin Sanders. Um, Alvin, uh, talk with us about the three key roles that urban churches play in their community. Um, and, and Because you place a, a heavy-duty emphasis on the church, and I want people to um, to hear that and not miss that. Yes. Um, so we just talked about one of, one of the... Uh, things, uh, which is empowerment. And I believe, you know, uh, Acts 1-8, Jesus essentially, you know, he told us that he would leave the Holy Spirit to empower us to do works, you know. And there's no more, there's no better empowerment, I should say, of, of citizens of, of who live in communities of poverty than to disciple them. 
And Amen. to disciple them means to invest deeply in their lives, to invest deeply in their hearts. It's to invest time, talent, and treasure in them so that they can be all that God has called them to be. And then the second thing alludes to what you were talking about, my heavy emphasis in the book about the church, which is to partner. You know, in Matthew 16, 18, you know, Jesus told Peter, I will, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's, and it's ironic because a lot of times as Christians, people don't think about those who live in a condition of poverty and churching them, so to speak, starting, starting churches among them, strengthening the, the already present local churches that are there. We tend to think in terms of goodwill projects, which is not necessarily good. So, you know, Jesus did not say, I will build my food pantry. I will build my tutoring program. I will build my Christian community development uh, venture and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All those things are great and right in their own eyes, but the local church needs to play the role of the local church and be a partner with those institutions in the community that's trying to change the common good of the community. So the common good is sort of where does the life of the Christian and the life of the community meet? And it, it, that's education. That's all of the different types of institutions that we think about. The local church should be playing a role to uplift those institutions within that community and partnering with them. And then the other thing, of course, is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission, is at the end of the day, we are to reach the community. And for whatever reason, some Christian traditions have this thought of it's either evangelism or it's justice. And I just mm. think that's crazy talk. The Bible talks about both of them robustly. It talks about evangelism. It talks about justice. And we need to combine both of them, because if you don't do that, you're really not truly trying to speak for the neighborhood and work with the people who live in the neighborhood, because we just have to get over the fact, to be blunt as Christians, that injustice happens more often than not in communities of poverty for a variety of reasons. And we, we need to address that. That's where the advocacy comes in. But we can be advocates without leaving our faith. I think evangelism is justice. Like, I, I just think that we need to get to the place as evangelical Christians where we just recognize that evangelism is justice. It is unjust uh, and, and it is active injustice for me to not want to spend eternity with another person. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I can't imagine a graver sin than for me to um, want to, you know, help a person live a little better here and now, but not so desire to want to spend eternity with them that I share Jesus. Like, I don't even get that. I don't get that disconnect, but I, I recognize that it's real. People want to go and do some kind of good to others to, yes, alleviate um, some momentary pain and, and frankly, make themselves feel a little bit better. But that is, uh, that, that, is, that just doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough in terms of sharing the gospel, and it doesn't go far enough in terms of walking the gospel out uh, in tangible ways that actually bring transformation in the lives of individuals and communities. Um, I think yeah. that you make a, a really astute observation that I, I, I want people to hear, um, and that is this disconnect that you observe um, between like a pursuit of personal holiness, like a me and Jesus kind of approach to life, and um, a, a holiness that really happens as the church is doing what the church is called to do and being what the church is called to be 
in the transformation of a community. Those are two diff- those are both holiness, but we only think about one as holy. Yeah, because there's we have a bias as westerners to 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 individualize everything, particularly in America. So, uh Jesus the, the the typical formula that Jesus came and he died for our sins and that if we accept Jesus into our heart we'll be saved. That's that's definitely part of the story, but that's not the only that's not the whole gospel. The whole gospel is also Jesus came to destroy the evil works of of Satan. He came to to rescue the entire world and all of its systems and all of its functions. I mean, Ephesians 6 is very clear that we're wrestling against uh, spirit, spiritualities and principalities, so to speak, and that there are in, evil influences in this world that not, not only come in individually, but come in systematically. And so we are to put our trust and our faith in the Lord, certainly on an individual level, but we are also, to, when we see injustice, we are to combat it as representative of Jesus Christ. As a former inner city pastor, I, I can't have a, I couldn't have had an evangelism program for the kids in my neighborhood and do nothing about the fact that the schools that they were going to were horrible. Mm-hmm. Do I really care about those kids? If all I say is just, just trust Jesus and put them in your heart? Well, certainly that's great. That's fine. Come on in. We'll disciple you. But they, they need an education. And if I know that that's what they need, then I need to be an advocate for them. It, 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 is, it is the biggest, one of the biggest travesties is to see churches fighting over evangelism and justice and their two sides of one coin. You can't really do one without the other, as you've pointed out, Carmen. Give people one, um, one tangible step that they could make today in the direction of um, introducing themselves to a, a local urban church, making themselves more aware of how local urban churches are engaging in their own communities. Because I'm, I'm just aware, Alvin, that many of the people who are listening right now do not live in an urban center um, and do not uh, participate in an urban congregation. But that doesn't mean that they're any less called to what we're talking about. No. And in fact, it's it's beyond urban. It's it's the call to those who are impoverished. It just so mm. happens that the most concentrated pockets of people in poverty, you find them in major cities. But if you're if you're going in uh, into a community of poverty to do work, you, you the number one thing you need to know is you're not there to rescue them. You are just as broken as they are. And you're coming in. You should come in as a learner and you should come in as a fellow fellow human, so to speak, a fellow believer in Christ, someone who's coming in to, to, to not come in with arrogance, that just because you're in a higher social class, you know more than them, you're more successful at life at them, and you have to check your arrogance at the door. You have to come in with a humble heart and be willing to, to learn and to understand their world and then to help out as, you, as best you can. We have to remember that these folk are people of God. They're made in the image of God. They have talents and giftings and abilities just like everybody else. And so we come in humbly. We come in as learners. We don't come in as rescuers. We come in with a mindset of wanting to see the people redeemed as well as the neighborhood redeemed. Yeah, I um, I learned a lot um, listening to 
people who were living on the streets in Orlando. Um, this is this goes back a number of years, but um, I just you can just learn a lot by just listening to people's stories. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of Christians out there, a lot of Christians out there um, living in um, spaces and places that um, you know that that we would describe as uh, as ridden with poverty. Alvin, thank you so much. Um, folks can uh, can find. Alvin uh, online, Alvin Sanders. The book is Uncommon Church, Community Transformation for the Common Good. I do have copies to give away. If you're interested in entering the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Alvin, um, what a delight. Thank you for what you're doing every single day at World Impact. Thank you for having me, Carmen. Absolutely. Happy Advent. All right, everybody, that's all the time we have. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.